My name is Erin Lasley. I've traveled many different roads in my life. I've been a law enforcement officer and first responder in the United States Coast Guard. I've worked in a couple of psychiatric hospitals, but now I'm a professional historian and podcaster. I've also had an interest in true crime for most of my life. In this podcast, I study some of the most notorious crimes through the lens of a historian and analyze what may have inspired criminals, investigators, and even society during the commission of those crimes and investigations. Join me as we look into the history behind the crime. Hey everyone, how's it going? I hope everyone is doing well and enjoying life to its fullest. I'm trying to. It, you know, isn't it amazing how everything seems to be going fine? Or at least you have everything balanced before life decides you aren't being challenged enough. It's like you're lined up to catch that perfect spiral before someone from the sidelines throws a football at your head just because they think it would be funny. Am I the only one that feels this way sometimes? Yeah, life sucks sometimes. But I am doing my best to cuddle with the pups and I am enjoying tea. Lots of tea, actually. For some reason, I've been reading a lot of trashy romance novels set in the Regency period, and they're always ordering tea trays from their servants. And I started thinking, I want tea trays. So I dug out this cool teapot my Aunt Kathy sent me a few years ago. Thanks, Aunt Kathy. And bought all these little pastries from the grocery store, which is probably not a good idea. And in the evenings, I just turn off the TV I brew me a pot of tea and I enjoy my my little tea tray while reading about empire waist dresses and ton balls and being scandalized by an unmarried couple holding hands. It's just shocking and for some reason kind of romantic. Anyway, what brings you joy? After a long day at work, what do you look forward to the most when you get home? Is it your kids, your dogs, that glass of wine you've been thinking about since 8 a.m.? Whatever it is, I hope you enjoy it today and manage to duck that rogue football coming at you from the sidelines. I also want to make a confession. I am a horrible citizen. I checked the mail the other day. And there was a letter from my local municipal court. And I just kind of like shrugged it off thinking it was jury duty and I was kind of excited about that. But it was actually a default notice on a traffic ticket. A default notice. I haven't been pulled over, Knockwood, since 2020 in another town and I paid that sucker the same day. I couldn't understand what the heck was going on until I actually, you know, read the letter. It was a red light camera citation. And suddenly I knew when and I knew where. A few months ago, I was heading to work and there's a light with the red light camera just up the street from work. Immediately preceding the light, there is a gas station. Of course, I was behind a car going about 15 miles per hour in a 35 mile per hour zone. And it starts to slow down before the light 
to make a right into the gas station parking lot. The light was green when I started to go through the intersection and I watched and I waited with apprehension as the light turned yellow and then red when I was still in the intersection waiting for the dang slug in front of me to turn. I saw the flash from the camera behind me when the light turned red. So, if you were the one driving the SS Titanic in front of me of that day, don't worry. It's completely fine. I didn't need that $106 anyway. The last time we met, I left you with a bit of a cliffhanger. If you haven't listened to part one, I suggest you do so because I'm going to forego the entire recap. After the dramatic shootout between police and SLA members and the roaring fire that destroyed the house the SLA had hid in, the world waited with bated breath, wondering if Patty Hearst had been in the house fire. Was Patty Hearst an heiress to one of the largest newspaper empires dead? Had she, too, been killed either by smoke inhalation or by suicide? Speculation ran amok among law enforcement and the press while Patty's family waited in agony for news of their wayward yet beloved daughter. After investigators discovered the remains of the SLA members in the burned-down house, they announced that Patty Hearst was not among them. If Patty wasn't in the house with the people who had kidnapped her, where was she? For days, LAPD drove around the neighborhood where the house had burned down, hoping to come across Patty. But the police were not the only ones looking for Patty. Members from another radical left organization were also looking for her and other SLA members. The Weather Underground. The Weather Underground was another far-left Marxist domestic terrorist group originally founded at the University of Michigan. Just a reminder that not all crazy people come from California. And they were much more organized than the SLA. While the SLA killed respected educators and robbed banks and sporting goods stores, the Weather Underground bombed police stations, the Capitol building, and even the friggin' Pentagon. The SLA were small time, while the Weather Underground were big league. The Weather Underground also thought the SLA were, quite frankly, nuts, looney tunes, deranged crackpots, and overall just sick puppies. Rick Ayer, a leader in the Weather Underground, described the SLA as follows. We really thought groups like the SLA were nuts and horrible, and yet we felt some responsibility. We could recognize the level of craziness and that someone needed to get a hold of them and just say, chill. Rick and others in the Weather Underground drove around L.A. trying to find Patty and S.L.A. members, if only just to save them from themselves. Ultimately, everyone looking in L.A. failed. The police in the Weather Underground should have looked a bit more south. Patty and the two SLA members who robbed the sporting goods store, husband and wife Bill and Emily Harris, took refuge in a motel just down the street from Disneyland because everybody likes to go to Disneyland. They watched the news in horror as their friends died on national TV. 
The three of them renewed their allegiance to the SLA and packed up the car and drove back to the Bay Area where they rented a small apartment. The three drank jugged wine, argued over plans and money, and then over sex when Emily refused to submit to Bill. He raped Patty instead. The three needed money, security, friends, and to get the hell out of Dodge. The Harrises contacted the SLA's biggest fan, Kathy Solaya, who had organized a protest rally in the dead SLA members' honor in Ho Chi Minh Park at Berkeley. Interestingly enough, I had to look that one up. During the Vietnam years, communist advocates renamed Willard Park in honor of North Vietnam's venerable leader. Anyway, Solaya, and I think that's how you pronounce her last name, and others took the three in and they all headed out to New York in the summer of 1974. And sort of technically, it's kind of a weird story. Named the Symbionese Liberation Army, the New World Liberation Front. But they would switch back and forth from the SLA to the NWLF quite frequently. When word spread that the SLA changed its name to the NWLF, the world didn't care. Just another left-wing nutjob group trying to make the news. Even the FBI rolled its eyes. When the NWLF invited other people to set off bombs in its name, the group was met with silence at first. Now let's remember, the people who blindly followed a ragtag bunch of loser terrorists weren't the brightest or sharpest crayons in the box. And this was pre-internet, and you had to look pretty far and wide to find instructions on how to build a bomb. It's no surprise that the first two bombs placed at the General Motors Acceptance Corporation and then a GM dealership, both in California in August 1974, they were duds. In September, the NWLF finally got it right and exploded two bombs outside two Dean Witter stock brokerage firm offices in San Francisco. After that, NWLF bombs exploded on an average of every 16 days in California. As amateur as the group was, they planted more bombs than any other left-wing domestic terrorist group in the United States. Twice as many as the Weather Underground. They just didn't plant them at the Capitol building or the Pentagon. As these bombs were going off, Patty and the Harrises were holed up at first one farm in Pennsylvania and then a second in New York. They were not having the time of their lives. The Harrises constantly squabbled with each other and Patty later said she was just happy to be alive. From the descriptions Patty gave, Bill Harris was all talk and no play. He was a machismo asswipe who talked a big game, but wasn't capable of doing much more than beating his wife and raping Patty. By September, Kathy Solaya announced she had lined up new recruits for the gang, and Patty and the Harrises should return to California. Patty went first and traveled with friends of the NWLF. For the most part, it was a pretty uneventful trip. 
except for the part where the group got pulled over by an Indiana cop. Did the cop recognize the most wanted woman in the United States sitting in the back seat of the car? Of course he didn't. I mean, that would have been the end of our story. I could tell you all about how the gang reassembled and tore a path of destruction across Northern California, but I won't because they really didn't. For several months after the trio met with their new groupies in, Sac in Sacramento and then San Francisco, all they really did was plan and fail to execute. There was constant infighting musical beds, and lots of shoplifting to keep everyone fed. Which makes me really hope they shoplifted more than one communal toothbrush. In February 1975, the group was once again running out of money and turned to their old standby of bank robbery to get more. Two of the new recruits, Jim Kilgore and Mike Borton, knocked over a branch of the Guild Savings and Loan in Sacramento and made off with almost $4,000. The money wasn't spent wisely, and the group of misfits, I mean revolutionaries, couldn't settle on any solid plans on how to build their communist utopia. The main problem everyone but Bill Harris agreed on was that a white man was not an effective leader for a communist outfit. Emily Harris even went as far as saying that, quote, only a black or third world person can understand the plight of the oppressed masses. I don't know if she really believed that or if she was just taking a dig at the de facto leader, aka her husband, Bill Harris, or maybe she was doing both. But by this time, everyone began to tire of Bill Harris and his braggart big man attitude. One thing they did all agree on was that they needed more money and they needed to rob a bigger bank. On April 21st, the Harrises, Kilgore, and Borton entered the Crocker National Bank in Carmichael and ordered everyone to get on the ground. One woman, Myrna Opsal, froze in terror Emily Harris turned towards the frightened Myrna and killed her with a shotgun. Hearst was waiting in the getaway car and reported when she asked if the woman in the bank was bleeding to death, Emily said, oh, she's dead, but it doesn't really matter. She was a bourgeoisie pig anyway. Myrna was a 42-year-old mother of four who was at the bank to deposit money into her church's bank account. Her murder and Emily Harris's cold words left many of the new recruits uneasy. The new plans the Harris's began to cook up also widened the gulf between the old school SLA members and the new SLA members, and we're back to calling them the SLA. The Harris's decided it was time to kill some pigs. They wanted to go after cops. The new recruits were stunned. Some remarked that they knew police officers and those people were decent people. New recruits began to leave after realizing, holy shit, these people really are crazy. But the Harris's important were intent on causing some damage. Patty said she went along, so they didn't kill her too. The group managed to get their hands on some plastic explosives, 
but mostly because of Bill Harris, the group's activities resembled more of a Marx Brothers movie rather than a Marxist revolution. Once again, these brainiacs weren't explosive experts and only managed to blow up a few cop cars if their little bombs worked at all. The events unfolded like this. Bill Harris would build the bombs, the others in the group would plant them, and then Harris would yell at the group when the bombs didn't explode. For the sake of time and our sanity, let's just skip ahead to the takedown. Because the SLA was horrible at bank robberies, some of the members had to go legit and work real jobs for real money. I guess they got tired of sharing that communal toothbrush. I don't know why that's funny, but it is. Kathy Solaya worked as a waitress under an alias, and Kilgore and Borton took odd jobs painting houses. This would eventually lead to their downfall. But it started when some dude drunkenly stumbled into a police station out east and told the police and the FBI that his brother had hid the Harrises and Patty in those farmhouses in Pennsylvania and New York. This led to a friend of that same SLA friend dropping the dime on a friend of Kathy Solaya's and on and on playing the friend of a friend, sister of my third cousin's wife's hairdresser game until someone gave up Kathy Solaya's alias. The FBI swarmed the Sacramento and San Francisco area and tracked down Kathy and then Kilgorn and Borton. After some surveillance on some of the safe houses, the FBI stormed into an apartment where they found the Harrises. Bill Harris immediately surrendered because I guess he was man enough to beat his wife and rape Patty, but he was scared of the FBI. Emily, on the other hand, attempted an escape, but then kicked and cussed at the agents when they caught her and then slapped handcuffs on her. Not too far away, San Francisco PD breached a second SLA apartment. They found two SLA members in the house. The first woman gave herself up, but the second also tempted to flee before the police yelled that they would kill her friend if she didn't freeze. She froze and promptly peed her pants. Patty Hearst had finally been located. Here's a quick timeline for you. Patty Hearst was kidnapped on February 4th, 1974. 59 days later, she changed her name to Tanya and joined the SLA. She robbed the Hibernia Bank with the SLA on April 15, 1974. In May 1974, Patty and the Harrises robbed the sporting goods store and SLA members died in a house fire and shootout with the authorities. Summer 1974. The Harrises and Patty hide out on the East Coast and then return to California that fall. February 1975, Kilgore and Borton rob a bank. April 21st, the group attempted to rob a bank and Emily Harris killed Myrna Opsal. Spring and summer 1975, the group pulled off its Looney Tunes bombing campaign against the police. 
in September 18, 1975, more than a year after Patty was kidnapped. The Harrises and Patty are apprehended. Kathy Solaya, Kilgore, and Borton escape and go underground. After more than a year of Patty Watch, the press went nuts. Patty appeared on the front page of every newspaper, almost every newspaper, around the world, even on the front page of the Hearst Corporation publications. How did the SLA slash NWLF respond to the arrests? <laughs> I'm sorry. I should be laughing at this. <laughs> But it's so not what you're thinking, but makes so much sense. <laughs> they poured liquid steel in about 500 parking meters in San Francisco. <laughs> Other than the police, very few people complained. Okay, <clears throat> serious. Patty was first taken to the courthouse, where she was arraigned on several charges, including the Hibernia bank robbery heist, and then taken to the San Mateo County Jail. Patty listed her occupation as urban guerrilla and asked her attorney to broadcast the following message. Tell everybody that I'm smiling, that I feel free and strong, and I send my greetings and love to all the sisters and brothers out there. The Marxist terrorist may have said she was happy, but Patty looked terrible. At the time of her arrest, Patty weighed 87 pounds. And after some testing, her IQ had dropped from 130 to 112. Frankly, just reading some of the SLA's communiques made my IQ drop, so I don't doubt Patty lost some brain cells during her year with them. At trial, Patty's lawyer, the famed F. Lee Bailey, and if you don't know who he is, you should really do some research, proclaimed Patty was not guilty because she had been brainwashed. To be honest, there may be something there. Psychologist Margaret Singer, another person you should look up, an expert in brainwashing, described Patty in October 1975 as a low IQ, low effect zombie. Psychiatrist Louis Jolin West, a professor at University of California, Los Angeles, and another expert in brainwashing, agreed Patty was brainwashed and took no fee for his services. Years later, Robert J. Lifton of Yale University, author of several books on course of persuasion and thought reform, claimed Patty was a classic case of brainwashing. However, the defense brought in forensic psychology pioneer, Dr. Harry Kozol, who analyzed several criminals, including Albert DeSalvo, AKA the Boston Strangler. Dr. Causal described Patty as a rebel without a cause and committed the bank robbery under her own free will. Other psychologists testified Patty never thought of herself as being in danger. 
the prosecution didn't stop there. Not only did they paint Patty as a spoiled rich girl, but they labeled as sexually inhibited too. They introduced testimony about Patty's sex life pre-kidnapping and told the jury Patty had not been raped and had enjoyed her sexual escapades with the men who had raped her. Not only that, Patty was lying when she said she had been raped because everyone knew the SLA were feminists and would have never allowed anyone to rape Patty. Welcome to the 1970s, everyone. On March 20th, 1976, a little more than two years after her kidnapping, a jury convicted Patty for bank robbery and she was sentenced to seven years in prison. A little while later, another judge sentenced Patty to probation for the sporting goods robbery because he believed Patty had been coerced. Before he was murdered at Jonestown, California Representative Leo Ryan collected signatures for Patty's release, and this one really blew my mind. The John Wayne stated that everyone believed Jim Jones could brainwash 900 people, but no one could believe the SLA brainwashed a teenaged girl. In February 1979, Patty was released early from prison after President Jimmy Carter commuted her sentence, and she received a full pardon in January 2001 from President Bill Clinton. Two months after Patty was released from prison, she married a police officer. As for the rest of the SLA, Bill Harris was sentenced to seven and a half years in prison for the Hibernia bank robbery and, and kidnapping. Emily was also sentenced to seven years and was released in 1983. Sadly, or happily, they divorced each other while they were in prison couldn't happen to a nicer couple. Meanwhile, the 1975 murder of Myrna Opsahl languished for many years as prosecutors didn't believe they had enough evidence to convict the perpetrators who wore masks during the bank robbery and thus could not be definitively identified even though Hearst and others, you know, gave their witness testimonies or something like that. Anyway, Mrs. Opsahl's son, John, relentlessly pressured political and law enforcement authorities to bring his mother's killers to justice. His persistence paid off on January 16th, 2002, when newly uncovered evidence derived from groundbreaking forensic technology that now enabled the FBI to link shotgun shells removed from the victim's body to those that had been found in an SLA hideout, made it possible for Harris to be charged with murder, along with Sarah Jane Olson, formerly Kathy Solaya, we'll get to that in a little bit, Emily Montague, formerly Emily Harris, and Michael Borton. At the time of his arrest, Bill Harris was working as an, this kills me, an independent private investigator in San Francisco. Previously, he had been a private investigator for a number of criminal defense attorneys. 
On November 7th, 2002, the Harrisons, Olson, and Borton all pled guilty to second-degree murder charges. Bill Harris served eight years in prison for his role in a murder. Emily got eight years for murder, but only served four years for murder. But how did authorities catch Kathy Salaya, Borton, and Kilgore? Salaya went on the run, eventually moving to Minnesota. She lived as a fugitive for 21 years, changing her name, and creating a new upper middle class life under the alias Sarah Jane Olson. And it's such a wholesome sounding name. She married a doctor and they had three children. The FBI arrested Celia slash Olson in 1999 after a tip was received by the television show America's Most Wanted. Love that show. Uh, oh yeah, they aired her profile twice. Law and Order SVU used Celia's story for one of their episodes too. Borton lived underground until 1984. After visiting his mother on her deathbed, Borton turned himself into authorities and served a short stint in jail. After he was released, he married Kathy Solaya's sister and they had four kids. He only served a few years for Myrna Opsal's murder. James Kilgore was a little bit harder to catch since he fled the country to South Africa. Authorities finally caught up with him in 2002 and he was extradited to the United States. He was sentenced to 54 months in prison for explosives and passport fraud charges. He was the last remaining SLA member to face federal prosecution and he was released in 2009. Joe Romero is the only SLA member still in prison. He was convicted of the murder of Marcus Foster and has been denied parole 11 times. So the big question is, was Patty Hearst brainwashed? Or was she just another rich kid who wanted to give the finger to daddy? Only Patty knows. Well, some psychologists certainly do put stock in brainwashing or Stockholm Syndrome. A 2007 FBI report found that 73% of kidnapping, of kidnapping victims or hostages of violent crimes display no affection for their abductors. So it seems Stockholm Syndrome or the Patty Hearst Syndrome is more of the exception rather than the rule. That being said, there have been several cases of kidnapped girls and boys who willingly stayed with their captors out of fear. In 1991, J.C. Dugard was kidnapped by sex offender Philip Garrido when J.C. was 11 years old. J.C. spent years in a shed behind Garrido's house where he raped J.C. and where she later bore two children. In 2009, J.C. and her two girls were rescued from Garrido after they had been spotted in public. There were several times as an adult, J.C. had the opportunity to escape, 
but she had been effectively brainwashed by her abductor. No one doubts JC's story. No one really doubts the tales of cult brainwashing either. How else do you get hundreds of people to drink poison flavor aid in Jonestown or remain in a compound in Waco, Texas to burn to death with your children? These are not things rational people do. Before Patty's kidnapping, there was no evidence that she was prone to violence. Sure, okay, she could have been described as a brat, but she attacked with words and not with actions. During the first weeks of her kidnapping, she was trapped blindfolded in a closet and repeatedly raped and threatened with bodily harm and death. She was only 19 years old and probably scared out of her wits. She was forcibly taken out of a comfortable life and thrust into a world of dingy roach-infested apartments, rape, and wacko gun and bomb-wielding zealots who assassinated one of San Francisco's most beloved educators. Whether it was brainwashing or not, she may have played along just to survive, and once she was too heavily involved, she could have been too scared to go to the authorities for fear no one would believe her. It seems that her fears were justified. Last week, I listened to the season premiere of Small Town Dicks, and their guest was retired Tacoma detective Lindsay Wade. After listening to the episode, I downloaded her book, In My DNA, in binge Reddit. My wonderful friend and past guest, Shannon, even bought the book. She and I were both enthralled and frightened by all the sex crimes in our area. I was especially shaken when retired Detective Wade wrote about the investigation and arrest of a serial rapist in the town where I live. This monster abducted women from the shopping center where I get my groceries and pet needs. It rocked the hell out of my world, and not in a good way. Detective Lindsay wrote a lot about DNA, obviously, cold cases, and the backlog of rape kits. Here's what a lot of you may not understand. A rape kit is not automatically tested. Many times, they sit on evidence shelves for years or even decades. Some are never tested. Why? There are several reasons, including the fact that there are so many sexual assaults that the police and labs just can't keep up. A white paper by the Justice Department's Office on Violence Against Women describes some of the possible factors leading to sexual assault kit backlogs, including victim-blaming attitudes and actions, budget cuts and reduced crime lab staff, and bias against women and victims of sex crimes. In 2022, at least 25,000 untested rape kits sat in law enforcement agencies and crime labs across the country. This figure only accounts for data reported by only 30 states and Washington, D.C. 
The total backlog number is unknown. Untested rape kits can have significant consequences for both the criminal justice system and sexual assault survivors. Not only can rape kit testing provide crucial evidence that helps identify perpetrators and bring them to justice, it can also connect offenders to other assaults. Failing to test kits in a timely manner can mean missed opportunities to identify serial offenders and prevent further victimization. The failure to submit rape kits for lab testing in numerous jurisdictions has decreased community trust in law enforcement. Survivors from Houston in 2020 and Memphis in 2023 have filed class action lawsuits against city officials for their rape kit backlogs, asserting that timely testing of rape kits could have prevented their own or others' sexual assaults. And I want to thank USA Facts for all that information. DNA evidence has become a critical factor in achieving justice for survivors of sexual violence. But there are still challenges in the way evidence is collected, stored, tracked, and used to hold offenders accountable. The overwhelming backlog of DNA evidence is currently one of the biggest obstacles to prosecuting offenders of sexual violence. This is a major problem since sexual offenders are often repeat offenders. Out of every 1,000 suspected rape offenders re referred to prosecutors, 370 have at least one prior felony conviction, including 100 who have five or more. And that's just the crimes the justice system knows of. Two thirds or more of college rapists are repeat rapists who have raped four or more times on average, even within a single year. With timely testing of rape kits, authorities can stop these offenders before they have the opportunity to offend again. There are several things you can do to help. You can research your state's laws and data on backlog rape kits. You can write to your state representatives asking for better laws and funding to test rape kits. Or you can donate to organizations who educate lawmakers, advocate for victims, and distribute grants to law enforcement and crime labs to test rape kits. If you want to donate, I recommend End the Backlog or the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network. Both are very fine organizations that have done a lot to decrease the backlog of untested rape kits. But please, do your own research before you donate. Finally, last Friday, Las Vegas PD finally made an arrest in the 1996 murder of Tupac Shakur. Police arrested 60-year-old Dwayne Keith Davis. As far back as 1998, Davis has told anyone and everyone he was a front row passenger in a car from which another passenger fired the shots that killed Tupac. Davis even confessed to the police in 2009 but authorities claimed they couldn't use the information. Finally, after what police say was a 
reinvigorated investigation, quote unquote. A grand jury indicted Davis and police were able to arrest him. I'm sure this will be in the news for months to come. I'm just happy Tupac's mom is finally getting some answers. And with that news, that wraps up this episode. And I am currently working on a Halloween special. It's gonna be fun. Oh my gosh, I love spooky season. It's my favorite holiday. It trumps Christmas. I got new decorations for my work office and nearly bought Walgreens out of candy. I normally give it to all the young active duty military people at work if I don't eat it first. I've already made caramel apples. I'm currently wearing socks with ghosts on them and I just wanna squeal with delight. Okay, until I see you guys or hear from you, y'all do me a favor. Take care of yourselves and take care of each other. Bye.